0: The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. It's good to see you. I'm Dave, one of the pastors here, if we haven't met yet. Uh, before we get going, I want to remind you that we are continuing our gift drive uh, here this coming week, and uh, we sponsor about 60 families in our area over the holiday season. And you can still sign up to bring a gift for those families. So go to the hub or our website and sign up there on our sign up genius uh, link and sign up to bring some gifts. And if you can't bring a gift, you can always donate money and put in the memo gift drive. And we can use those for gift cards for these families and other things they might need as well. So um, well, at the end of every year, the uh, Oxford Dictionary people, they pick a word of the year. And over the last decade or so, they have selected words. Uh, that become part of our vocabulary, they're new words. So in recent years, they've picked words like vape, selfie, unfriend, these words that you know what they mean now, but you didn't know what they meant a decade ago. And uh, as recent as 2016, they picked uh, just the phrase post-truth in 2016, uh, because for many in our world, of course, truth is subservient to how I feel and my own personal belief system. And then in 2015, they went really creative and they did the laugh cry emoji as the word of the year. These are the Oxford people. These are the smart people of our world. Um, now I won't say what emoji fits 2020, but you can probably guess which one. Um, 2020 has proven to be a challenge to pick just one word. Now, I know you're thinking that you can think of some creative words uh, for 2020, but I, but I can't say those words from this stage. That's just the reality. Um, but they decided to choose a bunch of different words for 2020. How do you pick just one word for this year? And so they picked words like cancel culture, community transmission, flatten the curve, virtue signaling, BC, which means what? Before COVID, uh, shelter in place, social distancing, super spreader, lockdown. And mask shaming. These are all words that we had to learn this year. And, uh, but our hope is that these words wouldn't be what defines 2020. Our desire during this Advent season is to reclaim 2020 with some different words. Words like hope and peace, joy and love. And you know, those words that we talk about at Advent those are the words that make it on all the cards. We put glitter on those words, and they become these kind of throwaway statements. And sometimes these words can lack teeth, and we forget the meaning and significance of it, but hopefully those, those concepts take on a whole new meaning when they're, when they're said in the context of what's happened here in 2020. At least they have for me. So why do we celebrate Advent? Whenever we hear Advent, most of us think of Christ's first coming, but historically, the church focused on his first and his second coming at Advent. They would spend the first two weeks of Advent focused on his second coming, a time of confession, repentance, and praying for his quick return. But the last two weeks, they would spend uh, focused on his first coming. And uh, Advent, it really points to our place in between the resurrection and his second coming. So how do we live in this in-between space? And so today we're going to talk about peace, and we'll go to a passage that we don't normally think of around Christmas time. Now, last week, uh, we heard from Tim's dad, John Cartwright. It's really interesting because everyone gets me and Tim mixed up somehow. And the, before the last service, the guy said, was that your dad that preached last, last week? And I said, uh, yeah, it was. And he, he liked my dad a lot. So, um, But that was actually Tim's dad uh, who preached last Sunday, John Cartwright. And last week, he talked about hope. And I was pleased to see that he went to Romans 5 because that is where I'd planned to go for this message. We're still going to go there today. I'm going to preach a different message than what he preached, obviously. But we see all four Advent themes here in Romans 5. And today we're going to focus on peace. So look with me in Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 8. It says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So Romans 5 is not the first passage you think of when you think of Christmas, but instead of going into the narrative, I wanted to look at why he came. Why did Jesus come? What did he come to accomplish? So one clue in studying the Bible, whenever you see the word therefore, it means, What he's about to say hinges on all that he just said. So what has Paul said up to this point in Romans, in Romans 1 through 4? Um, In Romans 1 through 4, we gain insight into Paul's message by his use of of pronouns. Now, many of your kids are in school. My kids are in school, of course. They're learning the parts of speech. And they always ask questions like, when am I ever going to use this stuff? And I would say, well, when you study the Bible... And so these are important things. And so we look at the, the, the use of pronouns for Paul all through Romans uh, 1 through 4. In the first half of Romans chapter 1, Paul introduces the gospel message, and he uses the pronoun I all throughout the first half of Romans 1, reaching a crescendo in verse 16 where he says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And then in the latter half of chapter 1, he switches to the pronoun they. Now, showing how the world, they need the gospel. And in chapter two, he moves to the pronoun you, speaking to the religious person who thinks they don't need the good news and saying how they really do need the good news. And in chapter three, he refers to all, Romans three twenty three for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so both the pagan and the proud are all in the same boat apart from Christ. Then in chapter four, he shows how justification by faith is nothing new. Abraham was justified by faith and not by works. And Paul uses the pronoun our, referring to Abraham as our spiritual father. There was a song that someone wrote about that a long time ago. Then in chapter 5, there is a series of we statements. And these we statements are all flowing from this idea that we are justified by faith. So all these statements, these we statements are only true for those who have come to saving faith in Christ. I really appreciate Tim's dad last week making the gospel so clear, and inviting those who do not know him to, to surrender to Christ. And so this, this, these, these we statements only apply to someone who has come to faith, true faith in Jesus Christ. So what does it mean to be justified? I know that many of you know that word, but what does it mean to be justified? It means to be put right or to be declared righteous before God. So many of us understand that we're justified, but we don't understand its effects and the way that our justification should impact us in the here and now. So when I was young, I was raised um, kind of out in the countryside where I grew up and there was a pond close to our house and I would either go there to fish sometimes. While I was fishing, sometimes I might just start throwing rocks into this pond and I would just watch the, uh, the rock drop and then the ripples just go out to the edge of the shore. I was easily entertained as a kid. And, uh, and I would do this just to kind of kill the time. But really, um, the rock, of course, is the cause, and the ripples are the effect. And really, that's kind of how this passage is set up, because the rock is our justification by faith dropping down. And all these we statements are the ripple effects, the, the effect of that cause, our justification in Christ. So justification should not be some lofty and abstract concept. But it should make a difference in how we see God, how we see ourselves, and how we act and feel right here in the present. I think of uh, several years ago when I had a student who had gotten into some legal trouble, and this thing was going to go to trial. And if he was found guilty, he was going to have to go to prison for several years. And the family asked me to come and just be a support emotionally and spiritually during, during that during that time for them. And so I attended a few different days of the trial. This went on for several days. And it came time for them to read the verdict. And I got a phone call, and they said, come down to the courthouse. They're going to read the verdict, and we want you to be there for that. And so I got there, but I got there late. They'd already read the verdict of not guilty. And now the family's coming out of the courthouse as I'm arriving in the parking lot. And that young man burst through that front door of that courthouse and had tears streaming down his face and just wrapped me up and said, Dave, I'm free. I'm free. I'm free. And so we had this moment of celebration right there in front of the the Justice Center here in Bell County. But on the way home, I started feeling kind of convicted because I started asking myself, you know, why don't I see my salvation with that kind of joy and gratitude? You see, you and I have experienced an even greater pardon. We've been declared righteous before God. And so I, I think you and I have to See our justification differently, not some just abstract theological concept that we agree with, but how does it affect you in the here and now, how you see God, how you see yourself, and even how you act and feel? And so if you look at verses one and two, there are these three realities that justification brings. We're gonna to cover to the first two. Well, first off, we have we have peace with God. This is not the same thing as the peace of God. We'll get to that later on in Philippians chapter four. But peace with God is objective and true, whether I feel it or not. And I don't know if we understand the full weight of this. You see, for, for peace to exist, that means there had to be a war. Again, I think we, we think of these concepts at Christmas as just, that's what you put on a card, it's what you put in a greeting, it's what you put in a sermon, but we forget What these concepts really mean. In order for there to be peace, that means there first had to be a war. And until until we're saved, there is this war between God and us. You see, you and I, we have to view sin differently. Whenever we sin, it is more than just breaking a rule. I know for the young people that are here, you just your parents talk to you about sin, and you see sin as simply as: okay, there's a list of rules that I can't do. And that's what sin is. Well, no, it's, it's more than that. Sin's more than breaking a rule. Whenever we sin, we are essentially, we're essentially we're dethroning God and declaring ourselves king. And that's an act of war. We believe that God is sovereign over all and God has dominion over all. And so whenever I sin, it's my way of saying, no, God, I'm in charge of this, not you. And when there's two parties in dispute, there's going to be a war. We've declared war against God. And so, no matter what age you are, but as you were saved, we, we we are at war with God before we come to know Christ. We can only appreciate peace when we realize there was a war. At the end of World War II, there were scenes all over the, all over the world just like this. My grandfather fought in the South Pacific. Many of you have family, relatives that fought in World War II. And There were scenes like this all over the world after that surrender happened. So why did these things happen? Well, they had just come through the worst war the world had ever seen. In many years of unparalleled death and destruction, the physical toll so great, but the emotional and spiritual toll even greater. And when that surrender happened, all that heaviness was lifted, and there is exuberant celebration and joy all over the world. For you and me, when we come to Christ, there's an even greater heaviness, the weight of sin's power and the weight of sin's eternal consequences, and all that gets lifted through Christ. We get declared righteous in Christ. I don't think we celebrate our justification like we should. We don't celebrate peace with God like we should. You know, especially those of us that come to Christ early in life we completely miss this reality. Whether you were saved at the age of four or 64, before Christ, we were at war with God. But then when God comes and declares peace in his son, Jesus Christ, when God declares us righteous, the war is over. And ironically, World War I was called the war to end all wars. But only a few years later, there's, there's part two, World War II. You see, the peace that the world offers is... Is fragile, it's unstable, it's not secure, but God's peace is solid, it's secure, it's stable, and it never changes. R.C. Sproul, he writes, we can find certain levels of peace in this world and things to pacify our anxious souls, but there is a foundational anxiety that can never be quieted apart from our justification. A person cannot be fulfilled inwardly, no matter what he does, No matter what he has, if he is estranged from his creator, if he is at war with God. There are so many ways in which you and I try to pacify our our anxiety at this foundational level, but that cannot be pacified apart from being justified by faith. Secondly, justification brings us access to his grace in which we stand. We see it right here in the text. I've always been captured by that last phrase because many of us see grace only as a starting point of our faith, but we don't just start there, we stand there. We live in it. We get to live in his grace. We stand in it. His grace doesn't just save us, but his grace grows us. No matter how far along you are in your faith, you have to understand That the same grace that saved you at your justification is the same grace that's sanctifying you throughout your life. It's not something different. Grace is the mechanism that grows you in, in the same way that it's the mechanism that saved you. And so we have to understand that, that we stand in his grace. If you think back to the Old Testament, the inner chamber of the temple was called the Holy of Holies and only one time per year, could the high priest go into that place because God's presence dwelled in there? But then at the death of Jesus, what happened? Well, there was this curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from the holy place, and that curtain was torn in two. This means that every believer now has full access through Jesus Christ into the presence of God. So spiritually speaking, you and I get to stand in that room, and not once a year, but all the time, what do we say whenever an earthly relationship is damaged or disappoints us? We say that someone fell out of favor or someone fell out of grace. Well, you and I, we never, we never fall out of grace with God. That never happens when you're in Christ. You see, justification doesn't just remove the negative consequences. I think most of us, we think of justification as just, as, it's, it's simply just a legal term. I'm declared righteous. There's this law court picture And all that is true, but it doesn't just stop there because we get to enter into a relationship with God. Friendship with God is referred to often throughout Scripture. We get to to have this relationship with him. And the question is, do you really see him in that way? Do we see ourselves as having full access into his presence standing right there in his grace you know every year we we celebrate his coming in the flesh but every day we get to celebrate our standing in his grace and that's a place that we get to stand all the time look down with me at verse three it says not only that but we rejoice In our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. I'm not going to spend that much time here because Tim's dad focused a lot on this last week, but the definition of suffering is that suffering is always, it always seems like a subtraction. Suffering, it always feels like something's being taken from us. Something we find pleasure, comfort, or someone that we love, suffering always feels like a subtraction. But Paul's words here are similar to James chapter 1. When we suffer and things are subtracted from our lives, at the same time, God uses suffering to add. God uses suffering to add things to our lives. So suffering is this addition by subtraction. As things get stripped away... God adds things like endurance and character and hope. I think of uh, for me personally, when I think back on of course before 2020 when I think of like a tough year for me personally, it was the year uh, two thousand remember y2k Everyone was freaking out about y2k and all that. Um, well, it turns out they thought the world was going to end back at y2k but they were just they were just 20 years too early, right um, But that year was a difficult year for me personally because it was the year between I'd finished college and and I just felt like I had no direction. You know, in a job I hated, a relationship I was in ended and just things were just happening and they were not good things in my estimation. And I was just really just crying out for God that year to give me direction, like what's next for me in my life. And I can remember it was a difficult year. But I will tell you that I sensed his presence that year like no other. And I couldn't really explain that. And you see, when we think of our own suffering, we look at this, these themes in Romans 5, we see all of Advent right here in this passage. We see that peace with God leads to this finding joy even in our sufferings. And then we can have hope because we know the end of the story. I think of how, I know many of you in here, you have, you have teams that you support, There's a team, a football team I support. I won't say the name because they don't currently have a name right now. But um, I'm glad you think that's funny, by the way. But when I would watch uh, my team play, of course, most of the time when you're watching a game, it's like the emotional just ups and downs. And as a fumble happens, interception happens, a a failed uh, third down conversion. And it's just this emotional roller coaster, right? But what I love to do sometimes, some people call this cheating I call it keeping my sanity. I love to wait till later on, record the game, and then, and then go look at the score and see if they won. And if they won, I'll go back and watch the recorded version. And I love that, because it's stress-free. Because every time there's a fumble or an interception or something bad happens, I'm sitting back on the couch just totally relaxed, like, this isn't the end of the story. I know the end of the story. And you see, friends, as believers, we know the end of the story. We know the end of the story. So that means as we walk through life and things happen and suffering happens and bad things happen, we know the ultimate outcome. And so there is this peace that kind of just transcends over us when we approach our lives that way. That will change how we handle suffering. Not only did God come to us in the flesh through Jesus, but he gives us the Holy Spirit. I love the words in verse 5 where it says, God's love is poured out into your hearts. And that's the Holy Spirit being given to you. I think most of us, we fail to see, we know that, but we fail to see that the Holy Spirit being in your life, dwelling in you, is really his love poured out for you. He shows his love for us by coming, Jesus Christ coming as a baby, living a perfect life in our place. And so we know that reality, but also he gives you the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit being given to you is his love poured out for you. That's a fascinating thing to think about. Tim Keller writes this. He says, if we face suffering with a clear grasp of justification by grace alone, your joy in that grace will deepen. On the other hand, if you face suffering with a mindset of justification by works, the suffering will break you, not make you. So how you and I approach suffering, suffering has this way of squeezing out of us what, how we really see our justification. So if we think of our justification as being by works, that's going to come out whenever we suffer. We're going to say to God, God, I'm not, I'm not owed this, God, God, I don't deserve this. So when you and I suffer, what we believe truly, our doctrine and theology that we really believe, gets squeezed out of us. And whenever we see that that heart attitude towards God, it's a chance for us to repent and turn to him and say, God, I don't deserve this. I don't deserve my salvation. I don't deserve my justification. It's by grace alone. And so suffering has a way of revealing what we really think And feel towards God. And it changes how we view our suffering. Look at verse 6. It says, for while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So Paul's making this argument that goes kind of like this. It takes a loving person to die to save another but even a loving person is unlikely to die for somebody who's evil. A good person, we might die for a good person, but an evil person, probably not. So this man here, Thomas, and I can't pronounce that last name. But um I never met this man, but he was the coach of my high school crosstown rivals. And he was a soccer and basketball coach. He was. This is a small Catholic school that was like a big crosstown rival for me in my hometown, our school in our hometown, and uh, and we just our teams we just didn't like each other that much, and we were just very competitive. And his teams always competed really, really hard, soccer and basketball. Uh, We couldn't afford football like you Texans do down here, but um, those are the primary sports that we played at my school. And, uh, and this guy had seven sons, and they all came through. And you wa- you're playing against these teams, and you're like, wait, there's another one? There's another one? And they're all really good at sports. And so uh, he just always had his teams really prepared, and I had a lot of respect for him from a distance as I watched his teams compete against us. This is a picture of his family. And he had seven sons. His youngest son was, uh, had special needs, and there was a time when... Uh, they're at the family farm and his youngest son Joseph is climbing around and there's this septic tank that's in the ground and it's got a lid that's kind of brittle and Joseph's climbing on this septic tank lid and the thing breaks and Joseph falls in. And his dad sees this happen and his dad jumps in after him. And this tank is too deep for um, them to get out at the moment and so his dad decides to get up under him in this septic tank tank and he he pushes his son up far enough to where he can get a hand and somebody can pull him out and so fortunately his son was saved but unfortunately the dad didn't make it and so this man gave up his life for for his son and that's a heroic that's a really heroic story I know many of us, if we're faced with a similar situation, you would do the same for your, for your wife, for your kids. You would die for someone that you care about, someone you consider to be good. But imagine if it wasn't your son or daughter, but someone you consider to be evil. Someone fell in and, they're, and you're right there. How likely are we to sacrifice ourselves for that person? Well, not likely at all. But this is just what Jesus did. You see, verse 10 says that while we were his enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, Jesus. So do you you doubt God's love for you? Even if our feelings or life circumstances make us question his love, We can look at his coming in the flesh and his sacrifice for us and know that his love is this objective reality, this objective truth. And this is the peace that Jesus brings. This is the peace that he offers us in relationship with him. And so this is peace with God. And so now we'll talk about the peace of God over in Philippians chapter 4. So turn to Philippians chapter 4. 2020 has been an anxiety-inducing year, hasn't it? And if you didn't already struggle with that, you probably do now. Everyone struggles to some extent, but there is a general anxiety many of us experience, and there is clinical anxiety. And I'm not addressing clinical. I'm talking about general anxiety this morning. John Piper defines anxiety this way. Anxiety seems to be an intense desire for something, accompanied by a fear of the consequences of not receiving it. So it is to imagine the future as a worst-case scenario and then to to freak out about it is how I would define anxiety. Before 2020, it might be just over things like academics and college, money, career, who you'll marry, if you're going to marry, disease or sickness in people that you love or yourself. And, of course, 2020 has compounded all of those things. But let's be really honest, the church hasn't always been the easiest place to talk about this topic. You know, many of us, we, we come into church, we get ready for church, we get our Bible, we're ready to go, and we put on what's called the Sunday persona. But on the inside, we're just a complete mess. As we look at Philippians chapter four, it's really helpful to remember that Paul's in prison as he's writing these words. So look at Philippians chapter four, verses uh, four through seven. It says, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So look back at verse five, that little phrase in verse five again. Let your reasonableness be known be known to everyone. That means that during a a global pandemic, in a politically divisive climate, in a racially charged world, the Christian should be the most reasonable. The Christian should be the ones most at peace. And that reasonableness should be apparent to all, not just to the tribe that we ascribe to. That means that Christians should not be the ones who are trafficking in conspiracy theories, trying to, fi- trying to find a way to satiate their lack of peace by trafficking in untruth or things that aren't backed up in fact. Christians should exhibit the greatest peace because we worship the one who brings peace. And so what is, what is anxiety? Well, the word literally means to be pulled in different directions, or to be pulled apart. And that's what some of you are experiencing right now. You feel pulled apart. You've got your hopes pulling in one direction, and life's trials pulling you in the other, and you feel this great tension between the two, and you feel, you feel pulled apart. The word worry comes from an old English word meaning to strangle. That's a good image, I think, for that word. Worry just has a way of squeezing the life out of us. It just it chokes out peace and chokes out joy. And worry does that to us. And one of the greatest causes of worry and anxiety is expectations. We don't expect suffering, do we? I recently heard a preacher say that we don't we don't just struggle with sadness and depression. We we're sad that we're sad. We're depressed that we're depressed. We're anxious about our anxiety. We don't expect suffering. And so, but the good news is we don't have to stay there in that place. You see, Paul doesn't simply say, don't be anxious and that's it. He doesn't leave us hanging like that. But he says we battle anxiety with prayer. Now, you might say, well, that's that's the obvious thing that the preacher's going to say, right? Just, you got to pray about it. Well, prayer is always... Is an answer, but it's not just any prayer, but the right kind of praying. We see a very specific pattern here in this verse, these verses. First, we see we bring praise and adoration. We rejoice before God. Before request, we have to remember who He is. And so, before you just jump into rattling off your request before God, We've got to come to him with rejoicing and praise and adoration. And I personally find this very helpful because whenever, instead of me just going to God inventing about frustration or situations, if I go to him in praise and rejoicing and adoration, I'm reminded who he is. I'm reminded of his goodness. Then when I go to my requests, I recall who I'm talking to. And I I approach my, my requests with a different heart mindset. Then there's, secondly, there's there's supplication. So we do need to bring our needs and requests to him. This This is where you share real needs and problems with God. And you get specific. I mean, just, if you don't feel like you can go to God in honesty, just read the Psalms. Read the Psalms. And you see how honest... And fourth, right, people were, when they were coming to God in prayer, praying their tears and praying about their fears all the way through. You see that in the, in the Psalms, all over the place. And then thirdly, we pray with thanksgiving. Now, we just had thanksgiving, and I think we take this word again, we take this concept for granted. Yeah, of course, you're supposed to be thankful and, and be people of thanks and all that. But thanksgiving should be at the center of the war on anxiety, because as we bring these requests to him, we thank him in advance for the outcome. And so we can say to God, whatever, whatever my lot might be in this situation, I'm going to thank you in advance for the outcome because you know better than me. You know the end of the story. And so it changes how we approach God if you, if you come to God with this kind of prayer. Because thankfulness should be at the center of the war on anxiety. I think whenever we pray in this way, our soul settles into peace knowing that we can trust him. I like what D.A. Carson says. He writes, I have yet to meet a chronic worrier who enjoys an excellent prayer life. So for me, sometimes I'll just brood over things or stew over things and talk with several people before even talking to God. And I recognize, no, I need to go to God with this. And God has a way of 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 settling this assurance of peace down into my soul in a real, tangible way when that happens. So whenever you engage God in this way, watch what happens, verse seven. It says, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. You see, peace with God is different than the peace of God. Peace with God is an objective reality, whether we feel it or not, But the peace of God is this assurance that settles down into the heart. And so not only does peace have this way of driving out anxiety, but it it has a way of standing over us and and guarding against future attacks. And it guards your heart and your mind. So this kind of person has has a peace that doesn't even make sense from a human perspective. You know people like that. I know people like that. Where they're walking through such treacherous situations and yet somehow they will say words like, I don't know, I just, I just have this weird peace about it. And yet they might even say, it doesn't even make sense to me. and It doesn't make sense to anybody else either how they can be experiencing such hard things in their life. Yet somehow God has a way of showing up in his grace and giving them great peace that surpasses all understanding in those situations. You've seen it, you've experienced it in your life and their life. I just think God has a way of giving us the grace to handle things we have never thought we could. So everyone's looking for this peace, this peace of God, but none of us gonna matter unless you know Christ. You see, we don't, we don't get this, this peace of God until we have peace with God. Peace of God flows from peace with God. Everyone's looking for this peace. You see it all around us. But we're never going to get it apart from a relationship with him because he's the only one that can bring it. I want you to go ahead and stand up for just a moment. In Numbers chapter 6, God commanded his servant Aaron and his sons to pray this over the nation of Israel. So let's go ahead and pray this out loud